Sports Talk 1110 99.3 WBT. Pete Callen are here, and it is Tuesday. It's 2 o'clock. We talked to the Speaker of the House. All right. The, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, joins us. Hey, Mr. Speaker, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Pete. Good to be with you today, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, and so a couple things happened since last we spoke. Governor Cooper is now up to, I think it's what, like 1,400 vetoes at this point. Um, he's done what the latest one, the, he vetoed ensuring dignity and non-discrimination in schools. This was the uh, the critical race theory, but don't call it critical race theory because it doesn't exist except where it does exist. This was that that bill, right? House Bill 324. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so what that bill did, Pete, was it very simply said that uh, as a part of any instruction in our schools is that the teachers cannot just teach to the students that any particular race is inferior to another or is an oppressor or anything like that. It certainly it allows a, um, it allows a full and frank discussion of the history of our state and our country. And, you know, we have some parts of our history that aren't uh, that aren't very pretty and i think part of a full well-rounded education is understanding the good the bad the ugly of history but you know the the opponents of the bill tried to claim that you know they couldn't be taught about slavery or some of these other injustices and that's just wrong uh it simply said that you can't teach as just a doctrine that any one race is inferior to the other and and i would think in you know that that's something that should be a no-brainer, uh, and the fact that the governor vetoed it really has a lot of us of us uh, scratching our heads. Right. So the and I thought the key was promoting. Right. That teachers could not promote these ideas, these concepts, these thirteen concepts. And I suspect that a lot of people on the left would have a problem if a teacher was in a classroom promoting the idea that uh, that whites were supreme, that they were a superior race, and that the Klan was fantastic and people should get out there and join it you know one one would hope so but they but they uh, voted against the bill that would have protected against that and the governor vetoed this bill so uh i don't know i'd say they have some explaining to do on that one but and uh and i hope that uh, folks will, will hold them accountable because that's just uh, such a reckless uh an absolutely reckless vote and just so far left um this critical race theory is just a, it, it's a it's toxic it's poisonous uh, it's nothing more than some left-wing garbage seeking to indoctrinate our students, uh, and and we cannot have it. And it's just, you know, the more you have that kind of stuff happening in the public schools, what's going to happen is parents are going to say, you know what, we're going to take our kids out, and we're either going to homeschool them or we're going to put them in private school or, or uh, uh, you know, religious school. They're going to do that. And, you know, we really need, for, for frankly, for the integrity of public education to get that kind of garbage out of the classroom. So it's, it's you mentioned the uh, uh, the opportunity scholarship idea here. The, the you know vouchers getting kids out of these uh, these toxic school settings. Uh, the Charlotte Observer editorial board or the McClatchy board they they were like, well, Republicans say that ideology has no place in schools, but does that include the private ones that kids are going to that are religious and we don't like their religion and what their religion teaches? And so, are you guys being hypocrites? Uh, not at all. You know, there's a difference between private schools and public schools. Uh, a student uh, has no, really no choice uh, other than some of the opportunities we've afforded to them than to go to a school associated with the zip code they live in. And, uh, you know, th- there's a different standard when you have public and state-sponsored 
it's it's held to one standard. However, when parents choose to send their child to a private school, a parochial school, uh, they're making that choice. And so they, those private schools are exactly that. Uh, they should be permitted to, uh, to teach based off of whatever the mission is of that school. And parents are making that choice. But that's, I mean, that's the whole difference between government and state-sponsored uh, versus private. So let me ask you also now about uh, another bill that uh, Governor Cooper vetoed, House Bill 805. Uh, this was one that you uh, uh, did a lot of shepherding through, right? You, I think you, well, you'll tell me, was it, were you the sponsor of it? it the Prevent Rioting and Civil Disorder. Um, and honestly, I thought the person who spoke most passionately in favor of this, I appreciate it, was Abe Jones um, on the floor of the House several weeks back. Uh, I thought he made a very compelling argument in favor of it. It did pick up some Democratic support, but in the end, Cooper vetoed it as well. He, you're, you're spot on, and unfortunately, uh, uh, when it came back to the House for final passage, Representative Jones and the other Democrats who had voted for it before voted no. Oh. Uh, and they did, and they did because of pressure from the extreme far left of the Democratic Party. And, and what you have here is a situation where Governor Cooper and, and so many Democrats who frankly know this is the right thing to do to pass this bill are absolutely beholden to just the, the left-wing nut jobs and that, that, that fund their caucus, uh, that, that put money into it. The same crowd that put in hundreds of thousands of dollars under this whole defund the police initiative. You know, this same crowd that, that uh, uh, thinks it's okay to go out and destroy property, to attack people, to assault law enforcement, to destroy businesses, to burn buildings, to burn businesses. They think it's okay to try to get their point across, and it's absolutely not okay. Uh, and we have some good laws in place, but we realized after the riots last year, some call them protests, let's call them what they were. They were riots. They were riots. They were destroying property. People were getting assaulted. Um, uh, after that, we saw where there were some holes in the system, where there were some issues where, for example, someone would be getting charged with a crime, and you know they would simply get, they would get charged, post a bond, and they would be back out on the streets. Uh, creating mayhem and destruction while the police officer who arrests him still at the police department doing the paperwork. Look, that's outrageous. Uh, it, it's, you know, and I'm sorry, it is not expressing your First Amendment right to take a skateboard and bash in the windows of a business or to go in and try to burn down you know, a drugstore. And, and I saw this firsthand. I mean, a lot of folks saw this, and it's outrageous. And, you know, it's, it's the, the voters need to remember this. They need to remember that Governor Cooper and that so many Democrats stood with those who would intimidate, who would assault, and who would destroy. And it is an absolute disgrace. And I think of all my years in the legislature, I don't know that I've been more outraged at this bill being vetoed and, and that this happening. And then you had so many Democrats who, when voting their conscience, voted for the bill in the House, it goes over the Senate and it, it becomes a, a call to arms by some of these ultra-left organizations uh, in fact, some of these uh, Democrat socialist organizations who actually had folks here testifying against it. And then they came back, and in the end, they, they folded and voted against it. Just unbelievable. And uh, I don't know that we'll get the votes to override, but I tell you, I got a feeling that a lot of uh, a lot of Democrats will have to answer for that vote in the elections because you know, anybody with common sense knows this was a fair and balanced bill. Uh, it balanced First Amendment rights with uh, protection against assault and destruction i mean it even it even cleaned up cleaned up some language to make it clear that 
simply being present during right. a protest that gets out of hand is not a criminal offense. I mean, it's a good bill. Right. That's what they kept saying. Well, oh, this is going to criminalize uh, First Amendment speech. It'll chill First Amendment speech. And somebody who's just there and all this. And like, again, Abe Jones, I thought, made the most compelling case. Like, we all know what the difference is. And the cop's going to know and the judge is going to know what the difference is between participating in the activity versus just standing there. Uh, And so the bill said that. And that's that's really disappointing that Representative Jones flipped like that, because like I, it, it actually restored some bit of faith I had. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. I, oh man. But you know, they—it's—I mean, look—it's a political body, and folks here have to get elected, and um, and and I and I appreciate and understand that they had pressure put on them. But I was sure hoping that folks would hold strong and vote for what they knew was right, because if they voted for the bill the first time. When, the, when it came back, it made it even more clear. I mean, we we even addressed some of the other concerns. There was no reason not to vote for it the second time around. But, look, that's up to those members to, you know, look at their own conscience and decide. Because I'll tell you, a lot of those members, Pete, that voted no are members from urban areas yeah. where most of the damage and most of the destruction happened. I promise you, we didn't have any rioting in Shelby or Kings Mountain. Okay? It didn't happen. Uh, but But those folks in Charlotte, those folks in Raleigh and Durham, I mean, it's those folks who are at risk. And, and you know this, I mean, everybody should be, anybody should be able to protest, right? You know, yell, hold a sign, what, a bullhorn, whatever it is. But when it crosses over to destroying property or assaulting someone, trying to burn down buildings, smashing windows, that's not protesting. And, it's, and it's, it should be common sense. And this bill was a good common sense way to address it. But uh, I have a feeling this is not the last word on this. Have you considered that you might have overlooked that uh, the the principle that it's okay when they do it that that principle in in law? You you, you mean you mean by as evidenced by the <laughs> by the universal uh, outrage right. and uh, uh, that happened in January right. that, that was that was noticeably absent in this uh, absolutely. And I'm gonna tell you, my thing is I thought that both were reprehensible. I think I thought that folks bust breaking into our U.S. Capitol. And, and storming the floor of the Senate and Congress was reprehensible as well. Uh, you know, as conservatives, we've been consistent on that, uh, but the left simply has not. Yeah. Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, thanks so much for your time, sir, as always, and uh, we appreciate you making time. We'll see you next week, I guess. Absolutely. Great to be with you again, Pete. All take right. Take care. care, sir. Maybe I'll start asking him for predictions of the Panther game. All righty. Um, Real quick, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department's Animal Care and Control Division, otherwise known as the ACNC, that's what I like to call it, um, they're sending out an urgent plea that if uh, you can take a dog for a little while, even if temporarily, that would really help them out. Shelters are uh, a lot more crowded in the summer, and the shelters are crowded, and so you can take a dog for a long weekend, maybe foster a dog, of course, Think about adopting a shelter uh, canine because they're they're basically at capacity, and that's not good. So uh, if you can, head on over to their uh, to their website. Let's see here was uh, cmpd.org, and uh, or you know make an appointment, go on in, and because you could do a staycation. So like you can, if you don't want to commit to adopting a pet, you could just take them for a weekend up to, or up to five days. Use it to go to the, you know, take it to the park, pick up chicks, that kind of thing. You know? Ryan, do you have a dog? Producer Ryan, do you have a dog? I do not. 
Would you like a dog? You could take it to a park. I want. Take- I want to be in a, in a in a state where I can take care of a dog the right way. What does that mean? I work every day. I work. I work literally sixteen hours a day. I don't want to leave a dog in my apartment so here's for what sixteen you do. hours a day. Take a vacation of like up to five days, and then just take a staycation with the dog. What's a vacation? Take a vacation. What's a vacation? Those are days that I take off that then you don't have to work. Tell me when you're taking vacation. Well, I just started, so it's going to be a long time. So. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, I also, uh, sad to report, I, I actually tend not to take all my vacations, so I'm sorry for that ahead of time. Okay. Uh, you can also foster a dog. This is a longer-term foster assignment, so it reduces long-term boarding of animals who a lot of times suffer from stress from being in the kennel, you know. That can lead to behavior issues. That's what happened to Ryan. So foster-centric is a trending term that describes a new model for animal sheltering. Puts animals who are ready for adoption into homes in the community, and that leaves space at the shelter for the animals who need special care or management. So if you can, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not going to play some Sarah McLaughlin music here and shame you into doing this. Like, But if you can, if you're thinking about it, you could, it doesn't have to be permanent. You could just take one on for a weekend, for a week. You could foster a dog. They just they need some help over there at the, at the kennel. Okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, story out of Minnesota. I just ran out of time. I was going to ask the speaker about this. Not that he would know anything about you know, Minnesota per se, but Reuters had this very big story, hands-off patrol. So in Minnesota... A wave of shootings in Minneapolis where killings are on the rise and people are complaining that the police are frequently nowhere to be seen. <gasps> no, they don't care anymore. One woman said Brandy Earthman was her name. And she says they're just going to let everybody kill themselves. They're just going to let everybody kill themselves. This woman, Brandy Earthman, quoted because, uh, you know, it's, what, it's one of the uh, journalistic uh methods that they use they you know you'll start a story with a person personalize the story rather than starting you know there's a policy that blah 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 you start with the story of a person impacted and how this policy will impact them. you make the reader care about this person so they start with this brandy earthman woman and uh she says you know they're just going to let everybody kill themselves well you gotta go to like the very end of the story here, because she was a victim. She, somebody fired into her house. And so that's how they start the story, talking about her and how uh, the shots sheared through the door of the living room where her kids were playing. And uh, you got to go to the very, very end. It's a, and this is a massive story. I lost track of the number of paragraphs. It's three pages printed out. And uh, the last page here, almost at the very, about halfway through the last page, uh, the shooters who came to Brandy Earthman's house one night in July on the far north end of the city approached before dark. They peppered the house with bullets from outside, striking her oldest son the second time he had been shot. The second time he's been shot. By the time she made it home from her aunt's birthday party, her three-year-old was throwing up from what she had just witnessed. She counted 10 or 11 bullet holes. Earthman says she is now looking for a new house, as far from Minneapolis as she can get. She says she did not know whether the house was targeted or if it was why. Her son was home because he's on house arrest. 
over a probation violation from a juvenile case. She says, I'm not sure if this was like something with my neighbors, if they were trying to shoot my neighbor's house and then hit ours. Yeah, that could be it. It could also be that your son's involved in some criminal activity. Just throwing that one out. Hey. Hey. Alrighty, so the Reuters does a big story called Hands Off Patrol. This may come as a shock. When you demonize people who get into a profession thinking that uh, that profession will uh, sort of make them the good guys, and then you call them the bad guys, they don't want to do the work anymore. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's true. So that's why you got a lot of cops that are uh, retiring. They're not, or people that are just not becoming cops. Uh, and then you also have this de-policing. This is not a new effect. In fact, it's called sort of the Ferguson effect. And Reuters has this big analysis. They went and looked at Minneapolis. Policing up there changed dramatically in the years since a white police officer murdered George Floyd. The video recorded killing of a defenseless black man touched off rioting, rekindled a national debate about racial inequities in law enforcement, and launched scattershot efforts to strip funding from police. In the months that followed, few cities wrestled more with the question of what the future of American law enforcement should be than Minneapolis. Officials here floated attempts to overhaul, shrink, or even abolish the city's besieged police force, so far with no success. In the interim, an examination by Reuters found that Minneapolis's police officers imposed abrupt changes of their own, adopting what amounts to a hands-off approach to everyday lawbreaking in a city where killings have surged to a level not seen in decades. Almost immediately after George Floyd's death, police officers basically stopped making traffic stops. They approached fewer people that they considered suspicious, and they noticed fewer people who were intoxicated, fighting, or involved with drugs. Some in the city, including police officers themselves, say that the men and women in blue stepped back after Floyd's death for fear that, they encou- that their encounter and any encounter could become the next flashpoint. And folks, that is a rational response. I talk about this stuff all the time. This is a rational response. I talk about it with like illegal immigration, right? People fleeing countries that are destitute, that are, you know, riddled with cartel violence, and they get people up in America, leadership that says, oh, yeah, you can come on up here. It is a rational response to come up here as they do. It is, uh, it is a rational response when someone says, here, take all this money and don't work. That's a rational response to accept the money. So it's hard to, it's hard to criticize people for making rational decisions. And so when law enforcement says, well, if any interaction I have could result in that, I'm not going to participate in that. I don't, want to, I don't want to be the cause for that kind of problem. I don't want my life ruined. right? I don't want to be judged like that as if I've done something wrong, even if I haven't done something wrong. So, And not to say that Derek Chauvin didn't do something wrong. I think he did. Um, the numbers... And I, don't, I forgot the specific numbers, but the numbers of police interactions, it basically works out to be, if I recall correctly, about of these uh, uh, police officer-involved deaths, works out to be about three a day. I think that's correct, because I think it was about 1,000 that the Washington Post was collecting, right, their data. And, and you have millions, millions of police interactions 
every year. I think it's like a hundred million or something like that. When you break down the numbers, it works out to be about three a day, roughly on average. And if every single day, those are the chances of some sort of, you know, national riotous behavior erupting because some cop someplace in America does something bad. And that's going to be the response every time. Then we don't have a, we don't have an ordered society, okay, like newsflash. That, that, that's not what we have. I don't know what we have, but that's not it. If every single time any single incident like that, based on the sheer number of interactions, right? Now, if, cops are, if, if the cops are on their own reducing the number of interactions, then those numbers are going to come down. So maybe they're solving this issue for us. By simply not policing. Of course, there's a whole bunch of other problems that are now arising, namely violent crime. I saw some report that came out the other day. They were like, oh, look, look, uh, crime is down, everybody. Crime is down. I mean, yes, yes, murders are up. But overall, crime is down. Like, okay, well, crime has been down because it's kind of hard to burglarize people while they're on lockdown because of COVID last year, right? Like, there's a reason why the, the, the petty crimes are down. But the homicides are way up all over the place. In the year after George Floyd's death, the number of people that got approached on the street by Minneapolis cops who considered them suspicious dropped by 76%. Officers stopped 85% fewer cars for traffic violations. One officer who spoke on the condition of anonymity said it's self-preservation. He said the force's commanders did not order a slowdown but also did nothing to stop it. He said, quote, the supervisor was like, I don't blame you at all if you don't want to do anything. Hang out in the station. That's what they're saying. The mayor of Minneapolis, that idiot, said much of the change in policing stems from a shortage of officers. A quarter of their uniformed officers have retired or quit since George Floyd was killed. Uh, And so he's had to pull some off of investigative duties to make sure 911 calls get resolved. So added bonus we're not going to solve the, the crimes that occur either. Yeah. A police spokesman, John Elder, said short staffing meant that we're running from call to call and don't have time for anything else. So this is what the defunding of the police and, and the rioting at, at every single case, which, by the way, like I've like George Floyd, as I mentioned, George Floyd was, in fact, in my opinion, and the, the jury agreed, was murdered. Now, there are so many other cases, though, that get held up as like these examples of uh, police overreach and abuse, and they're simply not. They're simply not. Each individual case needs to be assessed on its own merits. Um, but if but if the reaction is going to be like we saw over the last year, then you really cannot blame cops for behaving in the rational way that they have, right? Alrighty, so uh, Deadline Hollywood reporting that uh, the former SNL Weekend Update anchor Norm MacDonald has uh, died. He had a long and private battle with cancer. Um, that's just really sad news. I was a big Norm MacDonald fan. Um, whose laconic delivery of sharp and incisive observations made of one of Saturday Night Live's most influential and beloved cast members, he died Today, after a nine-year private battle with cancer, he was 61 years old. Uh, his death was announced to deadline by his management firm, the comedian's longtime producing partner and friend, 
Lori Joe Hoekstra, Hoekstra uh, was with him when he died. McDonald had been battling cancer for nearly a decade, but was determined to keep his health struggles private, away from family, friends, and fans. Um, Hoekstra said uh, that he was most proud of his comedy. He never wanted the diagnosis to affect the way the audience or any of his loved ones saw him. He was a pure comic. He once wrote that a joke should catch someone by surprise. It should never pander. And he certainly never pandered. He'll be missed terribly. And um, so when I think of Norm MacDonald, I think of the World War II joke. I can't not think of it. This was the last appearance he had on uh, The Letterman Show. There is one country that worries me, though. Not Iraq, not Iran, not North Korea. The only country that really worries me is uh, the country of Germany. I don't know if you guys are history buffs or not, but... uh... (laughs) In the early uh, part of the previous century, Germany decided to go to war. And uh, who did they go to war with? The world. never been tried before (laughs) and uh, so you figure that would take about five seconds for the world to win but uh, no it was actually close (laughs) then about then about 30 years pass and uh, Germany decides again to go to war and again it chooses as its enemy the world And this time they have that guy, shkankly, clankly, that guy. And I'm not even going to dignify him by saying his name, but I think you know what I'm talking <laughs> But you'd think at that point the world will go, listen, Germany, here's the deal. You don't get to be a country no more on account of you keep attacking the world. <laughs> you know, what What do you think, you're Mars or something? Uh, that was Norm MacDonald's final appearance on The Letterman Show, only because Letterman uh, was retiring. And so that was it. Norm MacDonald dead today at the age of 61 years old. It's uh, that's very sad. But I will say this is a good time to remind you that uh, all this month, it's Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month, and we're doing our blood drive to help kids that are fighting childhood cancer. And uh, we'll have the One Blood Big Red Bus out at the Community Matters Cafe. It's going to be on Thursday, September 30th from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. And uh, you can go make your blood donation or platelets and help kids fight childhood cancer. Um, And while you're there, if you want, stop on into the Community Matters Cafe, get something to eat, get something to drink, and you'll be supporting Uh, I mean, it's really life-changing work that the Charlotte Rescue Mission does uh, all year long, but this Community Matters Cafe is just one component of it, and you can help uh, them by, you know, getting something to eat or drink there. It's all part of the second annual WBT Little Heroes Blood Drive, Thursday, September 30th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Community Matters Cafe. Go to wbt.com slash events, and you will get more of the details. Um. Let's see here. Uh, oh, the Reuters story, uh, just to finish this up, that uh, the Reuters, uh, the news organization Reuters, they examined uh, Minneapolis's numbers and they draw a definitive link between police pullbacks and, uh, or I'm sorry, 
they say that drawing a definitive link between police pullbacks and increasing crime can be complicated. Homicide rates went up throughout all of America beginning in the summer of 2020. I wonder why. Not just in cities where the police scaled back traffic stops, but also in patches of rural America and other areas where patrolling remained unchanged. But three law enforcement experts interviewed by Reuters say that a less active police force can most definitely impact community safety. Quote, the evidence that proactive policing works is pretty solid, said Justin Nix, a University of Nebraska Omaha criminologist. More frequent stops make it riskier for people to carry guns illegally. Right? Think about that. You make more stops, you search more cars, you find more guns, and people eventually catch on, hey, maybe I shouldn't be transporting this illegal gun. Residents might be less willing to call for help if they think officers won't respond as well. If police pull back in the aggregate, and they're also pulling back in areas where crime is concentrated, that can be bad news, Nick said. Interactions between cops and the public typically start in one of two ways. Either somebody calls for help, usually 911, or an officer sees something and acts. To measure the change in policing, Reuters examined millions of dispatch and crime records from Minneapolis's police force that track how cops spend their time. And the pattern was stark, they say. Within days of George Floyd's death, the number of stops and other encounters initiated by city patrolmen plunged to their lowest point in years. The police spokesman said that the change uh, should be unsurprising at a time when the department was overwhelmed by rioting. So this is another part. Um, that they were not going to all of the different calls because they were all busy trying to contain the riots. Uh, But records show the pullback continued long after the unrest ended. In May, the most recent month for which complete records were available, officers initiated about 58% fewer encounters than they did in the same month the year before. Traffic stops down 85%. Um, Business checks, where the cops just stop in at a business to talk to employees and customers, those were down 76%. Think about that. There were So, whereas they may have made, a cop might have made four visits on the beat in a given day, now they're making one. Now they're making one. Is that neighborhood policing? Is that a, is that a good idea to keep neighborhoods safe? You want your cops to be less integrated in the community? These actions of consequences, folks. All right, that's a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I do appreciate it. Remember, Brett Winterbull is up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I will talk with you uh, tomorrow. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Don't break anything while I'm gone.